Good afternoon. My name is Brian Welker, and I'm a principal product manager on the Amazon RDS team. Excited to give you today a deep dive on Amazon RDS. Now, as a product manager on the team, one of my main jobs is to answer questions. And I get lots of questions. I get questions from support cases that people open. I get questions from our uh, field uh, account managers and uh, SAs. Uh, I get questions over the RDS forums. Well, we have a community forum where we answer questions about the product. And I get questions from shows uh, like reInvent. Uh, and so what I'd like to do over the next 50 minutes or so is to uh, review a lot of those questions, answer some of those questions that I get constantly about using the service in order to help you uh, use the service better. Uh, just a show of hands, uh, who's using Amazon RDS today in production? OK. How about for more than a year? More than a year? All right. How about more than five years? A few there. OK, good. Um, how about more than one database engine? Using more than one? More than four database engines? OK. Uh, well, we've got some, uh, some longtime users and uh, some users that are using the service. So hopefully we'll uh, get to a lot of those, uh, those key questions. So for those of you who are using it today, you probably know that Amazon RDS is our managed relational database service in the AWS cloud. Um, and you may not know that uh, Amazon RDS was started back in uh, 2009, one of the earliest services in AWS. And it was started by some folks who were running the Amazon.com database, the database that powers our e-commerce site, running one of the world's largest uh, uh, e-commerce uh, databases at the time. And they thought, well, if we, the things that we've learned about running databases is that we can take that and apply it to our, our customers' databases. We can do the same things for our customers in AWS. And so they started the core of Amazon RDS, started with the MySQL engine. And then over time, over the last seven years, uh, it's grown. Uh, we've added engines. We've added features. We've added the Amazon Aurora engine. So uh, it's really grown. And, and at the time, it was sort of a novel idea. Why would we have a database service. I can just use compute and storage, and I can run my own database. Uh, but we really wanted to provide a higher level service that took some of the uh, muck, sort of the grunt work out of running your own database. Things like provisioning, things like patching, things like scaling, uh, backup and restore. These are things that if you have good DBAs, you have good engineers, you can build yourself. But they're really not things that necessarily add value for your company. Um, and then we provide really these high availability solutions that I'll talk a lot about leveraging high availability. These are things that typically come in commercial databases at a very expensive price point. And we built them right into RDS. So from the beginning, you can take advantage of these. So why would you use a managed database solution? As I mentioned, we manage the muck. We manage the day-to-day -day grunt work of running a database. Uh, and that allows you to uh, get more out of your teams, right? So they can build their apps. They can deploy their apps. They don't spend a lot of time tweaking the database. And really focus on the things that differentiate your solutions, not uh, running a relational database. As I mentioned, we've built in high availability and cross-region, uh, uh, things like cross-region replication. So one of the benefits of being in the AWS cloud is that we have a global infrastructure. We can do things that are really challenging to do on-premises. Uh, being able to support uh, multiple data centers around the world for high availability, for disaster recovery. So even if you're a, a small startup just starting out and you're provisioning your first database, uh, you can take advantage of these features right off the bat. You simply uh, check a, a checkbox in the console, and then you get a really available solution with that 99.95% uh, really high availability. So the first thing you have to do when you uh, uh, start getting started with RDS is you have to pick the pick your uh, database instance. You have to pick your instance. You have to pick your storage. Um, and that can be a daunting task. Um, the first thing, actually, is, is to choose your engine. Uh, so we uh, now support the, uh, what we call the EBS base. These are our uh, uh, five engines on the left that are, are based on Amazon Electric Elastic Block Store. So two commercial engines we call Oracle and SQL Server. Um, obviously, those are products from uh, those companies we just run as is. And then we have our open source engines, MySQL, PostgreSQL, and MariaDB. Uh, these are engines that we take the community distribution. Uh, we do a small amount of uh, tweaking, but, but really we pretty much take them as is and then run them in uh, the RDS infrastructure. Uh, so 
that allows us with these engines to really uh, keep up with the improvements in the community. When those uh, new versions come out, when those improvements come out in the community editions, we just incorporate those into RDS. Now we do have our, our cloud native databases. So our Amazon Aurora, that comes in both the MySQL compatible edition and the PostgreSQL compatible edition that we went GA with uh, a few weeks ago. And those are built on the Aurora storage system. So instead of using uh, Amazon EBS, they use a, a totally uh, cloud native built from the ground up storage system that has a, a huge amount of benefits for durability, for scalability. Um, now I would encourage you for this talk, I'm going to focus, I'm gonna talk about RDS broadly, but I'm gonna focus on the EBS based engines. Um, if you want to know all about Aurora, uh, there are lots of great uh, presentations, uh, deep dives into the Aurora storage system. Some of the things I'll talk about are, are applied to all of the engines, but I really wanted to talk about some of the traditional, some of our, our EBS-based storage engines. So the first thing you do once you pick your engine, uh, and, and you know, many people pick their engine because they've got existing applications that they're running today. Sometimes they pick their engine because they want to move from, say, a commercial engine over to an open source engine. They're tired of paying licensing fees and they want to move to open source. Uh, sometimes they're building new applications and they want to take advantage. So, uh, you know, multiple people, you can take uh, multiple engines, um, but uh, once you pick your engine, then you have to pick your instance type. Uh, there are currently 27 different instance types. We, we support a subset of EC2 instance types, there's 27 of them uh, supported in RDS, um, but they really break down into three categories. You've got your T2 family, which is uh, sort of affordable for performance, uh, that's a burstable family, your M family, and then your R family. Now the T's are a great uh, uh, engine to start with, uh, sorry, a great instance type to start with. Uh, they are burstable, so they work on the notion of CPU credits, so you uh, get a certain amount of CPU credits, uh, then you use them up, you will see a, a performance degradation uh, as you're exceeding those credits. As you scale up in the T2 family, you're going to see you're going to get higher performance as well as higher credit limits. Um, they do have moderate networking performance. And just a note here, we recently introduced for uh, all of the Amazon EBS-based engines support for uh, T2 uh, extra large and T2 2x large. So you can go up to uh, eight vCPUs with uh, 32 gig of RAM. So a good size T2 instance, very affordable. Um, T2s are really good for uh, your variable workloads, so where you're maybe not running you know, continuously, or they're good for uh, sort of intermittent workloads. They're also part of the uh, T2 Micro is, is eligible for the free tier. So if you're just trying it out, you get a free T2 for uh, uh, a year uh, to try out and, and test the service. Um, as I mentioned, you do want to monitor, if you're using the T2, you want to make sure you're looking at your CPU credit metrics in CloudWatch. So go ahead and, and add those to, your, uh, to CloudWatch and make sure you're not consuming all of your CP credits when your uh, workload is at, uh, 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 you're, you're running your workload fully. So the next uh, step up is the M family. Now it has the same shape as the T2, right? it has the same memory to CPU ratio as the T2, so a good balance of memory and CPU. Uh, goes from now uh, two vCPUs and eight gigs up to 64 and 256. So we introduced support for the M4-16X large, so the top of the uh, M4 family. Um, high performance networking with EBS optimization also in the M4 family. And so these are really good for production workloads where you want uh, good CPU intensive. So if you're, say, wearing a, a big WordPress site, uh, it's really good for uh, the M series will do a, a really good job for you. Now the R's are, are just like the M's, except they have twice as much memory. So uh, they go up to a half a terabyte of RAM up on the upper end, the R416X large. Once again, we just introduced uh, support across the board for the R4 family for the EBS-based uh, engines and as well for Amazon Aurora. Um, and, and really good for query-intensive workloads. Uh, so if you're running something with high connection counts, query-intensive, things that are gonna take up a lot of, of memory, where you're gonna to wanna to have a, a large working set, uh, the R4 family uh, is really good. We do recommend that if possible, you use the latest generation. Uh, so if you're running an M3 or you're running an R3, you might wanna consider moving to M4 or R4. Uh, those are gonna give you the best uh, price performance. You're generally gonna get better networking out of the latest generation. Um, and as EC2 uh, introduces new uh, instance types, they always do. Uh, we will uh, support those uh, in RDS. So we'll continue to, to move forward and allow you to scale up to those larger instances. Ultimately, the, the best way to do it is to, to try it out, to run uh, your production workload 
uh, on your, on your uh, instance type of choice and then be able to see whether or not you're exceeding the, the resources, whether you uh, have enough I.O., whether you have enough uh, CPU to, to handle your workload. So the next question you have to, to choose uh, with, with RDS is which storage type should I choose? Um, we support an, uh, two primary storage types, two SSD-based storage types. So your general purpose storage is your sort of affordable storage type, similar to T2 and it has this notion of, of bursting, but instead of bursting CPU, uh, you're bursting IOPS. Uh, so uh, general GP2 and provisioned IOPS, uh, IO1 storage, both go uh, up to 16 terabytes. So uh, we recently introduced, uh, we upped the maximum from six terabytes up to 16 terabytes, so you can have uh, pretty large databases now uh, with the Amazon uh, EBS engines. Uh, with GP2, uh, the IOPS is determined by your volume size. So as you scale the volume uh, up, up until uh, about 1.3 terabytes, the IOPS that you're gonna get is dependent on the size of the volume. So larger volume, uh, more IOPS. Uh, minimum of 100, and then uh, when it's below 1.3 terabytes, it's actually going to uh, burst up to 3,000 IOPS, so you're going to get that bursting. Uh, that bursting will eventually deplete your burst credits, uh, so once again, you're going to want to, to, to monitor that. Um, but GP2 is a, is a great choice. Uh, we see some folks not sure about which one they, uh, they want to use, but we re recommend give GP2 a try. See if, um, especially on an over-provisioned volume, you're going to, uh, it'll probably be uh, good enough for you. Uh, now, our premium uh, uh, option is the provisioned IOPS, also called uh, IO1. Um, once again, an SSD-based storage, very fast. Um, I didn't, I forgot to mention, and I'll talk a little bit about it, we now leverage uh, Amazon EBS scalable volumes. Uh, and when I talk about scaling, uh, that makes it really easy to extend your volumes to, to grow uh, your storage. Um, goes up to now a maximum of 40K, 40,000 IOPS. Uh, we upped the maximum recently from 30,000 to 40,000, so if you really have IO intensive applications, you can now go up to 40,000 IOPS. SQL Server, because of uh, it's running on Windows and basically it's only using one EBS volume behind the scenes, is limited to 20K, uh, 20,000 IOPS, but still uh, a good choice there. Uh, and what you're gonna get with IO1 is consistency. You're gonna get that consistent IOPS 99.9% uh, .9 of the time you're gonna uh, deliver that. It'll deliver that to you. So high performance, high consistency. Um, the third option is magnetic. We still have magnetic storage. Uh, mainly for legacy applications. If you're running an RDS instance for years and you want to keep it running, uh, then you can choose uh, the magnetic option. We don't really recommend it for new databases. In the end, because with magnetic, you're actually going to pay an additional charge for each I.O., for each million I.O.s that you perform. So most magnetic users actually see that they pay more than they would for GP2, and they're gonna get a less consistent performance, and they're gonna get uh, uh, less throughput than they would with GP2. So we really support that for legacy databases but don't recommend that you use uh, the magnetic storage. So I mentioned a little bit about this choice between GP2 and IO1, um, and how do, how do you decide, how do you pick one? Um, you know, GP2 is a great choice. Uh, as I said, most people's applications, uh, you'd be surprised that most people's applications really don't uh, push that much IO, uh, and it's a great choice, and especially uh, if you scale up past one, point, uh, one terabyte volumes. Because what happens is, you can see from the chart, your baseline performance crosses over your burst performance. So you don't have to worry about burst performance. So if you're running a 500 uh, gigabyte GP2 volume and you want more IOPS, just go ahead and provision it up. And you know, it'll cost just a, it's cost a few dollars more a month, but you're gonna get much better performance and it'll be less expensive than if you go to IO1. Um, the burst balance metric is there in CloudWatch to determine your uh, credits that are available. And uh, once again, monitor your rewrite IOPS performance to see if you're running above that baseline and you need uh, more IOPS. The other question people get is, why am I not seeing 30,000 IOPS? I went into IO1, I provisioned 30,000, why am I not seeing that? Now, you really need to think about your IOPS rating as sort of the maximum IO rate. This is the, the top end of the threshold. Your workload needs to push that much data. We find a lot of workloads don't actually push the IO. Um, because of contention in the database, because you know, the threads in the database are actually not doing all that I.O. Or you're actually using memory more efficiently, so you'll actually see your IOPS drop because you're using your buffers better, you're using your memory better. So more IOPS is not necessarily better. Um, so you know, once again, look in CloudWatch, look at your, uh, your, your metrics and make sure that you're really using the, the I.O. that you're, 
you're paying for. So scaling. So once you've picked your initial configuration, you've picked your instance type, uh, how do you scale up and down? So if you've got additional load, you've got a, your application is, is uh, seeing more load than you expected, you've got more users, uh, you've got uh, uh, queries, you want to scale it up. So you can easily scale compute uh, uh, and memory. So you can scale anywhere up in the, the instance family, or you can scale to another instance family. So you could go from an M series to an R series uh, to handle additional uh, uh, capacity. Uh, you can also scale down, so you can uh, go to a lower instance class. If you don't need all that capacity, you're overpaying. Um, now, when we scale capacity, we create the new host. So we go to, to EC2, we grab a new host machine that we're going to run, we install the database on it, we, we uh, get everything ready, and then we disconnect the uh, original database, and then we reconnect the new database to the same storage and restart the database. So there will be some, there will be some downtime when you scale storage. Um, your applications will need to know that, so you know, they'll have to reconnect, they'll get a new uh, IP address because the new host will have an IP address. The endpoint will be the same, so uh, when you go to DNS and you get your IP address, it'll be the same endpoint, but you will have to reconnect to that new instance. So we recommend that you do a scaling operation you know, in a time when you can afford a little bit of disruption to your application. Now storage scaling, uh, as I mentioned, we now scale up to 16 terabytes of storage on uh, the uh, Amazon EBS-based engines. On, uh, Amazon Aurora stores, uh, scales automatically to 64 terabytes. Uh, so if you're using Amazon Aurora, that uh, has already been there. But for a lot of folks who are using uh, Microsoft SQL Server or Oracle or Postgres, uh, they wanted to go have larger volumes, so we supported that. The other thing that we did was we took advantage of the Amazon EBS Elastic volumes. And this allows us to extend a volume very, very rapidly. So before, when you went from, say, a two terabyte volume to a four terabyte volume, it could take a long time. It could take hours. Now, your database was still alive. You're still active. Um, you can still use the database. But what we were doing is we were copying over all that data to a new set of volumes and then switching over the instance to use that new set of volumes. Now, when we scale, we use the elastic volumes, and we simply uh, extend uh, the volume set for Amazon RDS. Um, and just a note here, Amazon RDS actually uses multiple volumes behind the scenes, multiple EBS volumes. We present that to, to you as a single data volume. So you don't have to worry about volume geometry or any of this. You just sort of say, you know, I want eight terabytes, I want 10 terabytes, and we'll uh, go provision that for you. So there's really no downtime to uh, storage scaling uh, once you've sort of uh, done that initial scale. Um, now, if you've got older volumes, uh, the first time of scale, it will be a little bit slower. Uh, we have to use the old technique to get it into a new volume configuration. Uh, so that, that does take a little bit of time. So if you're planning on scaling in the future, you might want to take that hit up front, and then later on down the road, you can use the elastic volumes and, and get basically uh, instantaneous scaling. Um, you're also limited uh, in scaling to once every six hours. Uh, we do, uh, do some optimizations. And uh, so we, we basically keep you from scaling once every six hours. That could change in the future, but right now that's the, the limitation. So just be aware when you're scaling uh, to make sure that you're, uh, you've got the size that you want. Now, if you're using provisioned IOPS, you can uh, change the IOPS value on the fly without any disruption to your storage. So you can increase the, uh, the IO that you're using uh, easily. The next thing people ask about is, how do I manage high availability? How do I manage backups? How do I do all the sort of the day-to-day -day tasks of running a, a relational database? So I want to first talk about high availability. As I mentioned, this is a feature that's typically in the enterprise version of a lot of our uh, commercial databases, and we built it right into Amazon RDS. Uh, our multi-AZ configuration provides at fault tolerance. We have an additional copy of your database running in a second availability zone. As you know, uh, most likely, an availability zone is a logically distinct uh, data center in the same region, uh, so you get sort of that uh, extra redundancy. Uh, you get automatic failover, so if we detect anything's going on, if we can't reach the host in the primary, if there's a networking problem, if there's some sort of infrastructure problem, then we'll initiate the, uh, the failover automatically. Um, all the data is synchronously replicated so that you don't have to worry about any data loss during this uh, event, and it's uh, super easy to do. You just turn on uh, one button in the console and uh, enable it. 
So it's not just enough to know that you have a high availability story, um, but what actually happens during a high availability story? You should test this. Um, you know, so it's great that you've set everything up, but do your applications survive uh, some sort of networking event? Do they survive when a multi-AZ failover happens? So this uh, diagram here shows you at a steady state, you've got your primary an EC2 host, that's the database server that your, your uh, database is running on. You've got your set EBS volume sets, and then you've got a standby in an additional availability zone, number two, and they're replicating synchronously. Now that replication is at the block level. It's not a logical replication, it's actually physically replicating the, the, the storage blocks. Um, and there's a third uh, a party here that's monitoring these two and making sure that it can see both of them and maintaining the quorum so that uh, they make sure that there's only one that thinks it's the primary and the only one that thinks it's the secondary so that they don't get effectively a split brain uh, syndrome. So once that observer determines that it does need to failover, um, it loses connectivity, then it initiates the failover, the primary becomes, the, the secondary becomes the primary uh, we put a new entry into the DNS table so that you can, uh, your application, when it gets disconnected, queries the DNS again and then uh, connects to the new primary. So you'll get a new IP address, reconnect to the new primary, and then you'll go. Typically, this process takes uh, about a minute, a uh, minute to two minutes to, to perform the failover. There is, will be some time when the, the new instance starts up on the, the new database starts up on the secondary. After that, then we'll reestablish a new secondary to make sure that we put you back into a highly available configuration. We'll start to repopulate the secondary, even if that secondary is on uh, either the, the existing host or we have to go provision a new host. Now, one of the things that if you're caching DNS entries, if your applications hold on to IP addresses, then make sure that they respect the time to live value. You want a low time to live because um, you know, when you go back and, and, and get a new IP address for the new, new primary, uh, you don't want it to be stale. Um, so please test this. If you're, you know, your applications simulate a failover, you can go into the RDS console and simply select um, reboot with failover. You just go to your instance, say reboot with failover, and then it'll initiate this, and you can see how your applications uh, behave. If you're using connection pooling, make sure that the connection pools uh, uh, behave. So the next thing that you might want to take advantage of is read replicas. And so people say, why would I, why would I need a read replica? Um, and read replicas, the primary goal is to relieve pressure on your source database. So you've got a, a writing node, you've got a main database, and you're finding that you've got extra traffic on there. And instead of scaling up the, uh, the primary, you might want to create a read replica to sort of offload some of that. Most applications are actually you know, read heavy, not write heavy. So you can create a, an additional read replica. Another reason you might want to do it is actually using a global read replica, using a cross-region read replica. So let's say you've got a customer database in US East 1 that's being updated continuously, and you need a copy of that in US West 2 out in Oregon, um, because you, you're going to have a, a read-only copy and you've got a front-end in, in US West 2 that you want to present to your users, and you don't want to pay for the latency to go you know, between across the country to, to go get data out of the database. So you can set up a read replica in another region. It'll, it'll populate that, um, it populates it asynchronously, so there's no lag time, there's no impact on the source database. Another reason you can use read replicas is actually promoting in case of a disaster recovery. So let's say in that same scenario, I'm on US East 1, I create a read replica in another region, and then something bad happens. I lose a database, I lose an application in the whole region, disappears, which hopefully never ever will happen, but uh, uh, so in that case you can, uh, you can populate, uh, you can actually promote the uh, secondary, the, the, the source database, sorry, you can promote the replica to be the new source database, to be uh, a new uh, master database, uh, and then use that for your applications and, and recover quickly. Um, the last scenario is uh, uh, kind of nice is you can uh, upgrade the read replica to a new version of the database. So let's say you're testing out, you want to test out the latest version of, uh, of MySQL, or the latest version of Postgres, but you don't want to impact your working uh, database. So what you can do is you can create a read replica, you can upgrade that to the new version, you can actually disconnect it if you want, and run your test on this new version so you get a full copy that you can run against, and then when you're ready, you can actually either promote that one or you can uh, upgrade it, uh, the, the uh, source database. So. Lots of scenarios, lots of useful things around read replicas uh, supported for MySQL, uh, MariaDB, and PostgreSQL.
Amazon Aurora also has a, a notion of read replicas. It's a little bit different in that it works on a, a shared storage architecture. So instead of getting an actual second copy of the database, you just have additional reader nodes on the, the storage architecture. So this is for all of the, the EBS-based, uh, for the EBS-based engines. So I talked about multi-AZ, I talked about read replicas, and, and you know, they both get copies of the data, so why would you use one versus the other? So I put together this just to sort of help you decide uh, you know, which is right for your scenario. Multi-AZ is synchronous, so every block is written to both copies, uh, both sides of the, of the database. Um, read replicas are asynchronous, so there is potentially a replication lag, depending on the distance between your source and your target, so you need to accommodate for that, you know, that, that, uh, that lag between the, the source and the target. Um, in a multi-AZ configuration, only the primary instance is available, so even though you have a secondary there that's waiting uh, in case of a failover, only the primary instance is actually active, uh, and then we switch over and start the database uh, once it's uh, on the secondary. Uh, in a read replica, um, all of the replicas are active, so you can use them for read scaling, there are full databases running, um, and, and you can use them for read scaling. Um, for multi-AZ, we actually support the ability to take your backups, I'll talk about backups in a minute, from the secondary, uh, so reducing any sort of impact on the primary. Uh, read replicas, you don't really need a backup because they're read-only copies, you can recreate them at any time. Multi-AZ is always two availability zones in a single region, so uh, exactly two. Um, read replicas could be either within the same AZ as the uh, source database, it could be cross AZs or across region, so you can you get that option when you create your read replicas. Uh, versions, so when I upgrade a multi-AZ configuration, the version uh, of the database upgrades at the same time, so both sides, because it's a synchronous copy, are upgraded simultaneously. Um, that does mean that when you have a multi-AZ configuration, um, that we uh, do have some, uh, some downtime when we upgrade the database. When we go to a new version of, of the database, we will uh, experience a downtime because we have to restart the database, reapply any of the changes that have, have occurred. Uh, read replicas, they're independent uh, database engines, so you can actually upgrade read replicas independently uh, from the, uh, the source database. And as I mentioned, that's a really good strategy if you're testing out a new uh, database uh, version with your application. And finally, uh, with multi-AZ, you get that automatic failover. Uh, when we detect a problem, we automatically failover. Although you can promote a read replica to be a standalone database, that's not automatic. Uh, that you have to manually go in, you can write a script, you can go through the console, and you can promote that um, as part of your disaster recovery if you want to promote that. So uh, in reality, we see lots of customers who use both, who use multi-AZ for their production database and then create a set of read replicas uh, from that multi-AZ configuration. So backups are another thing that if you're running your own database, you have to spend a lot of time um, managing your backups and managing the backup metadata and making sure that your backups are good. And with Amazon RDS, it's built in. Um, we have two types of backups in RDS. We have our automated backups. Um, these are a window of backups in which you can do point-in-time restores. And then we have manual snapshots where you can go in, either using the CLI or the API, you can take a full snapshot of the database and store that for later. Um, now, RDS uses uh, EBS, Amazon EBS snapshots, and those snapshots are stored off in S3. Now, they're not stored in your S3 uh, buckets, they're stored in the, the RDS accounts buckets, and you manage them through RDS APIs. So, you don't, don't go to S3 and expect the, uh, the snapshots to be there, we're managing on your behalf, and you access them through the RDS API. Now, in addition to support point-in-time restore, so point-in-time restore is the ability to effectively rewind the database to any time uh, that you want within a period. So let's say something bad happened yesterday at four, you can say, I wanna rewind the database to yesterday at 355, uh, and you can do that point in time restore. In order to support that, we store the transaction logs, so we take a full uh, backup of the database every night, and then we store the transaction logs every five minutes, and we ship those off to S3, and then when you restore the database, we're actually going to replay those transaction logs and get your database back to the point where you want it to. Now the nice thing about backups, because they're done by EBS, is there's no uh, performance penalty for them at all. There's not any sort of uh, load on the database server uh, that you'll have, uh, so you can uh, take as many snapshots as you want, you don't have to worry about them uh, uh, impacting your server. As I mentioned before, uh, you can see here in the, in the diagram, uh, we've got our availability zone one. Uh, this is a multi-AZ configuration, and we're actually taking the snapshots off of the volumes attached to uh, the host in availability zone two off of the secondary host. 
transaction logs are then being pushed each uh, five minutes into S3. Uh, then you can then uh, also take a, uh, a snapshot and you can copy it across regions. So let's say you want to have, uh, you want to store that snapshot in another region for disaster recovery, you can restore it later, or you just want to save uh, the database uh, at a certain point in time, You'll, we'll keep that around for you. So when should you use uh, uh, these different techniques? So an automated backup, you specify your retention window. Uh, it's super easy, it defaults to seven days, you can get up to uh, 35 days, and we'll let you do point in time restores to any time in that window. Manual snapshots, so you go through the, the AWS console, you select, I want to take a snapshot now, you give it a name, and we'll keep that, uh, keep that forever. So uh, automated backups will eventually leave the backup window. So if you have a seven day window, anything after eight days will be deleted and, and move out. Manual snapshots, when you take them, they're there forever until you delete them. Uh, so uh, you can keep them around, you can keep them for, for years and restore them um, if you need to. Um, automated backups support that notion of point in time recovery, so a specific time during the day. And then manual snapshots restores to that exact snapshot when you took that full backup. So automated backups, I mentioned, good for disaster recovery to get back to a good state of the database, while manual snapshots, good for things like before you make a big change. Uh, if you're using a production environment and you want to pull that into test, so you could take a, a snapshot of your production environment, pull that into your test environment, and then run your tests against basically a, a copy of your production environment. Um, any you know, environmental changes you're making or maybe a final copy before you delete it. So uh, we'll save one off in case you, you were, uh, uh, didn't want to delete that. So restoring a database. So how do you restore the backup? Uh, as I mentioned, there's two ways. You either do the point in time restore, as you can see in the, the top right, you specify the restore time, uh, or you so, uh, go to the snapshot, you say, I want to pull this snapshot back. Now, restoring creates an entirely new database instance. It doesn't affect the, the running database. So when I take a backup of my database and then I restore that, I get a new, a new database instance, a new set of, of storage. Um, it doesn't change the one that's running. So even if it's a point in time restore, that one's still there. Uh, so you'll get that new instance configuration. You can specify the instance type, the storage. Um, you will get the default parameter security and option group, so you might need to go set those after you do the restore. Now, some people say, why does it take so long? Uh, it can take, for large databases, it can take a significant amount of time for them to be fully restored. And the reason it does that is because the new uh, volumes are hydrated from S3. So remember, we're storing the backups in S3, and what happens is, is that we make the volume initially available to the database. So we, we get the volume ready, but then the blocks are pulled in as they're needed. So they're pulled in from S3. And so when you're initially uh, restoring a database and starting it up, it can be slow until some of those blocks come in. Now we're working with the uh, Amazon EBS team in order to prehydrate, to warm that quicker so that those blocks come in faster. But just be aware that you know, when you restore a large database and you want to get that up to speed, uh, it will take, take a while until you're basically pulled in all the blocks. Um, ways to mitigate that is to make sure that you've got an instance class with high I.O. capacity. So if you're restoring something, you can use a larger instance than you might in production, at least for that initial restore, and you could scale it back down. Um, and then you want to maximize the I.O. So maybe you want to use provisioned IOPS or other ways to really maximize that I.O. for uh, the restore. So we also get a lot of questions about security. Uh, so how do I secure my database? How do I make sure that my data is uh, secure uh, in the database? Uh, we know that database is the, the heart of your company and you wanna make sure that uh, it's secure. We've designed Amazon RDS to default and to, to be secure by default, to uh, be um, out of the box just as secure as you would uh, have on your premises or more secure. Uh, and that includes the uh, using Amazon VPC for network isolation using IAM for access control encryption through uh, AWS Key Management Service, uh, as well as if you're using the commercial engines, using uh, Oracle or Microsoft Transit Parent Data Encryption, and then using SSL. So these are some of the techniques uh, to make sure that your data is secure. So what does VPC do? Uh, you're probably using VPC today if you have a, a new AWS account, but it really isolates your database into a private subnet to make sure it's not accessible uh, via the internet. So while you're in development environment, you might want to open up ports 
uh, to allow direct management of your AWS, of your RDS database. But when you're actually in production, you probably want to turn off publicly accessible and just make sure that that database is only accessible by other instances in the same VPC, right? So other EC2 instances that can access that. So, um, you know, you'll, you'll want to make sure that you're, you're uh, managing your, uh, who has access to your database. But really that, that IP level firewall, opening up whatever ports you want to access your database. Um, if you're working with uh, instances in EC2 Classic, so if you've got an older AWS account, you can use things like Classic Link to communicate back and forth. And uh, VPC also provides things like routing rules, direct connect if you want to connect to uh, the database uh, to something on-premises. So for example, if you've got a database you want to replicate from on-premises into, uh, into Amazon RDS, you can do that through direct connect um, and tie this to uh, your VPC together. Uh, peering allows you to share uh, between VPCs and uh, gateways. So all features built into Amazon VPC. So granting access to your database. Um, so we use identity access management to determine who can do what to your RDS resources. Um, we encourage you not to use your root credentials to manage the database. You, you, know, you want to keep those root credentials uh, safe. Uh, assign roles to people or what they can do. Um, there's a, a you know, set up templates so that you make sure that only people can create databases, delete databases. You want to set those rules up, uh, including your, your sysadmins. Um, you can also use uh, the multi-factor authentication to provide an extra level of protection. So if you ever have a, 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 an account compromise and you, you, know, you don't want a rogue actor deleting your uh, RDS databases, you can use multi-factor authentication. It requires a token as well as a password in order to perform actions. And you can say, okay, you can't change the configuration, you can't delete sort of uh, dangerous actions uh, without multi-factor authentication. So that's managing the service itself. That's creating databases, instances, deleting them, um, uh, setting security, setting properties, options. Um, now once you're, you've got your database up and running, then you, you access it, you grant access to tables, views, stored procedures within the database, just like you, you would today with an on-premises database. So using tools like SQL Enterprise Manager or MySQL Workbench, uh, any of those apps will work today um, to uh, access, uh, provide access within your uh, RDS database. That's just the normal grants uh, that you have. Now we do have a couple of ways to provide integrated security. So we do support for uh, RDS for SQL Server, uh, Active Directory integration, so you can keep your user directory uh, in AD and then authenticate into uh, your RDS database. Uh, we also support IAM authentication where you can actually use IAM credentials to uh, for um, uh, RDS MySQL and RDS Aurora and, and Amazon Aurora. Um, so you can actually use IAM users to determine who can have access to your, uh, your database. So there's some options there around authentication. Encryption is also a, a feature that you'll want to turn on. Um, by default, I think it's, it's off in the console, but I would encourage you to turn on because it's basically free. Um, it doesn't have any performance impl implications. Uh, we encrypt at the volume level. So encryption at rest, the data is, is fully encrypted at the volume level. Um, there isn't any performance penalty for encrypting the data. And we provide centralized key access through uh, AWS KMS. So any access to the encryption keys is logged, it's audited. Um, we actually use a two-tier encryption. So you can see here we have your master keys uh, that are created or managed by you. And then each individual instance will have its own data key. And the master key is used to encrypt the data key and the data key is used to encrypt the data. And this allows you to do key rotation and it also uh, helps from compromising keys, right? Because if you, uh, you, can't, you have to have access to the master key to decrypt uh, the data key. Now, if a, uh, uh, once you encrypt a database, you can't unencrypt it. So it's a one-way uh, one door. You can take an existing non-encrypted database and if you take a backup of that, so you take a full snapshot, you encrypt the snapshot, and then you restore that, you can get an encrypted database. But that does take a while. So I would encourage you, if you're going to use an encrypted database, uh, go ahead and do that from the start. Uh, if a source database is encrypted in a read replica scenario, then the uh, read replica is also encrypted. So they're both encrypted. And that includes both within the region and uh, cross-region. So monitoring, how do you monitor the health of your instance? So um, people are used to uh, using third-party tools to monitor. Uh, we have a lot of things that are built into uh, Amazon RDS for monitoring. So 
uh, your basic CloudWatch metrics. There's about 15 metrics that you get just out of the box. You go to the console, you go to CloudWatch, you'll see those metrics there. Um, you can set alarms on those so you can make sure that you know, if you see a threshold, uh, uh, you know, a certain I.O. threshold or connection count threshold, you can set an alarm on that and then you can uh, get notification um, when that alarm happens. We have something called enhanced monitoring uh, for Amazon RDS. Uh, and I encourage you to turn that on and make sure it's on. Um, it gives you additional, about 50 additional metrics that are not included in the basic CloudWatch metrics. Um, and uh, it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really cost anything. It does use CloudWatch logs to, uh, to egress that data. Uh, but it really, uh, unless you're monitoring a large database at a high frequency, uh, it shouldn't cost you uh, uh, anything extra. Uh, you can actually go down to one second intervals too with enhanced monitoring. Um, we also have a, a integration with a, a lot of third-party tools. Now, that's uh, CloudWatch and enhanced monitoring is about monitoring the infrastructure, monitoring the, the basic uh, operating system. We have a new feature called Amazon RDS Performance Insights. Uh, with uh, Amazon Aurora for Postgres, uh, we introduced this new feature. And what this does is allows you to look inside the database and see what's going on. So this is similar to tools that you may have used for commercial databases where you can see what are the queries that are actually taking up the time? Why is my database slow? Oh, there's this query and there's contention. It's locked on another set of, of queries that are running. Um, so this was introduced, we, we introduced a new metric called active, average active sessions. So uh, you can see here it's broken down by the different SQL statements that are running inside the database. You can see the top bottlenecks, top SQL statements that are causing bottlenecks. Super easy to drill down. Um, we'll have an adjustable time frame so you can see, you know, was my database slow, you know, last week or yesterday? Uh, so you'll be able to take a look at that. Um, it's available now for Amazon Aurora Postgres and it's coming to all of the rest of the Amazon EBS engine. So MySQL, uh, MariaDB, it'll come for SQL Server, Oracle. So we'll have this functionality. And really we want to make it so that not only sort of keeping your environment running uh, is easy, but also uh, managing the performance of your database is easy. So one final uh, uh, tip on monitoring, how do you know when something happens on your RDS instance? Uh, we use Amazon SNS to notify you when something happens. So for example, a backup fails or a storage full notification. So you can create a subscription for events uh, right through the console and then uh, it notifies a, an SNS topic and then you can get an email, you can get a text message, it can call an HTTP, HTTP endpoint. Uh, so when something happens in your environment, you wanna be able to be alerted. Things like um, you know, what happened to an instance, if someone changed a configuration, uh, if a backup was deleted, if an instance was deleted. So uh, all of these will generate events and you can specify which events that uh, you're interested in uh, through the console. So uh, you should take really advantage of the, uh, uh, the eventing mechanism. Now one uh, popular question I get is about maintenance and about billing. Surprisingly, it's not about the technology sometimes, it's about you know, how am I gonna be billed and, and how do I keep my bill low uh, and then how are you gonna maintain my database? So from a maintenance perspective, um, when you create your instance, you're gonna specify a maintenance window. That's a once a week, uh, 15 minute maintenance window. And if we have any maintenance operations that causes downtime, now that doesn't happen very often. We try to, uh, as much as possible, don't cause any downtime, but it will happen a couple times a year. But if it happens, it will happen in that maintenance window. Uh, so, so don't think that just because it's Wednesday night at, at midnight that you're gonna get a maintenance event, you're gonna have disruption. Uh, but if you know, we do have a maintenance event, it will go in that window. Most of the operating system level maintenance that we do, most of the patching of, of the OS or patching of the RDS control software in the box is done without any database restart. Your database will keep running, serving connections, uh, and we'll patch uh, behind the scenes. Now, if you're upgrading the database to a new version, if you're going from you know, a new version of Postgres or a new version of MySQL, um, that does require some downtime because we have to apply the new engine binaries, move the, uh, uh, and then apply any upgrade scripts to that. Um, now minor versions are either automatically scheduled, so when you create your instance you can say, I wanna opt into minor version upgrades, so uh, let's say you wanna go from MySQL 5.7.10 to 5.7.19 um, automatically, so when we set a new minor version as preferred, then uh, we'll upgrade uh, within a, uh, the next maintenance window. Major version upgrades are always manually applied, so those are up to you because they typically have changes to the engine that may cause application compatibility issues. 
So you'll want to uh, see those. We do time to time also um, deprecate versions. So for example, if a version goes out of support um, or it contains um, uh, bugs that you know, are causing problems in the fleet that we've seen, um, we do uh, deprecate versions. We'll always give you a notice when we deprecate a version, when a version's going away. Uh, for minor versions, we'll give you a three-month notice, and then for major versions, we'll give you a six-month notice. Those notices appear on, you'll get an email, but we all get a lot of emails. Um, so they'll appear on your personal health dashboard as well. So there's a little icon up at the top of your console uh, that has a list of maintenance events, and so you'll see that this database version is being deprecated, and it'll be uh, an upgrade will be applied automatically within your maintenance window, but you will get time to plan for that. Um, I do encourage you that if you get a, a maintenance notification from us, you know, go ahead and plan that and do it. Don't wait till the last minute. We do uh, hear from people who get to the very end and then, you know, uh, uh, but uh, please, please uh, pay attention to those. So from a, a billing perspective, um, you know, bills are, are, are a little bit complicated, but they break down into three a key piece, your database instance hours, right? So this is gonna be depending on what region you're in, what your instance type is, what the engine you've picked, and then if you're using a license included Oracle or SQL Server, that'll be included in that instance price. Uh, so that's your, you're building that in instance hours. Your storage, your provision storage for um, uh, Amazon EBS or your consumed storage for Amazon Aurora, you'll get a storage bill that's built in gigabyte months. Now, along with the storage, you may have some additional charges for if you're using provisioned IOPS. Uh, you'll be charged for the amount of IOPS that you're actually provisioned. And that's not a variable amount. So if you say you want 10,000 IOPS, you're gonna be billed for that um, each, uh, each period, whether you're actually consuming IOPS or not. Now, for IO, for Aurora and for magnetic volumes, we also charge you in millions of IO requests. There's an additional uh, charge. And the final component is your backup storage. Uh, so it's the aggregate size of the backup that you've got that we're storing off in S3. Now there's no charge for uh, backup storage to the size of the volume. And what that means is that if you've got a one terabyte database, that means we'll store one terabyte of backups at no charge. And only when you go beyond uh, one terabyte that we'll start to uh, charge you uh, per gigabyte month. A lot of uh, folks who have larger databases but are using perhaps a small uh, portion of them, you know, they're using uh, you know, two out of five terabytes, will never actually see backup uh, charges at all because they don't consume enough backup. Uh, the final piece is the, the data transfer piece, and that's uh, similar to other services. Uh, there's no cost for transferring data into your Amazon RDS instance, so copying data in is, is free. Um, copying data out, so if you're doing lots of bulk exports or if you're moving lots of data from region to region, so the, on the out you could see uh, data transfer charges. Um, Data within the VPC, within the, the, the AZ, obviously that's, that's not, that doesn't count as, as data transfer. So um, a lot of folks never even see uh, transfer charges. So on your bill itself, it's gonna be, you're gonna see relational database service. Um, all the RDS charges are grouped by regions. So if you're using multiple regions, you'll see those grouped. And then within that, instances are grouped by engine. And you'll see both uh, reserved instances and on-demand uh, grouped together. Um, a real great tool, if you haven't used it, is the uh, AWS Cost Explorer. It just got an upgrade, I think, uh, last week. You can uh, get a graphical breakdown. You can break down by instance type. You can break down region. You can break down, analyze your bill. It's a really nice tool uh, for doing that. Uh, and then if you really want all the, the gory details for billing, uh, they have the uh, cost and usage report. Um, that's a detailed line by line each hour. Shows you exactly uh, what you're uh, consuming in AWS and how how you're being billed for it. Um, you do have to turn that on. It's not on by default if you haven't used that. And it stores that uh, on, in an S3 bucket. You give it an S3 bucket, and each hour it pushes out a very detailed uh, cost report uh, for you. If you wanna bring that into, a lot of uh, companies like to pull that in and bring it into their own database so they can do analytics. Uh, one thing you also might wanna do uh, is use tags. So there's a tagging feature in billing. So if you want to tag, say, your production resources or a department, you can set those tags on those resources and then you can see in the bill analysis you can uh, slice and dice by tag. So another question, how do I save money on my database? Uh, so uh, one of the ways is through Amazon RDS reserved instances. So RIs allow you, give you a discount over on-demand prices, uh, up to 60% I think for three-year uh, reserved instance and uh, 
30 or 40 percent for one year. Now, reserved instance is a little bit of a tricky word because we don't actually reserve capacity. Um, so it's not like if I buy a reserved instance, there's a, a, a space on a rack sitting there for me. Um, from an RDS perspective, it's just a billing commitment. You're basically saying I'm going to run a database for a one or three year period and I want to get a discount off of the on-demand price. Um, we do now offer size flexibility. Uh, we recently introduced that. So if you're running a, for example, a R4 large, and then you want to scale that up to an R4 extra large, we now count the RI for the R4 large against usage of the larger type. So uh, within a family for uh, all of the uh, open source engines and uh, Oracle BYOL, so we do offer that uh, uh, RI flexibility, allows you to get better uh, RI utilization. Um, we, re we also re in, uh, we in recently introduced uh, the uh, RI utilization report. So this has been working a while for EC2, and it tells you of the RIs I've purchased, how many are being utilized and how much. Uh, so this worked for EC2. Uh, it now works for Amazon RDS as well. So you can go in there and see, okay, uh, how am I using, uh, actually uh, using against my reserved instance. Uh, they also have something called the coverage report, which is of the on-demand usage I'm using, which is covered by RIs and which is not covered by RIs. That report will be uh, working for RDS uh, very soon now. So that's coming soon. So that really allows you to analyze um, your, your usage. And then the final thing uh, is a way to save database is to uh, stop it when it's not in use. Um, we recently added the ability to start and stop a running database. Uh, so you can go to a database, you can say stop. Um, while it's not running, you're not paying for that database. You're only paying for uh, the storage that's being used. So uh, it's available today for single AZ database instances. Uh, we mainly focused on uh, development and test environments where you've got developers who go home at night, don't use the database over the weekend, and you don't want to have to pay for that database uh, while it's not being used. Now, if you leave a database to sleep for uh, more than a week, we'll actually restart it uh, because what we need to do is make sure that you haven't passed any, re uh, any maintenance, required maintenance. We don't want to build up a set of patches over time. So we'll restart it, we'll reapply the patches. Uh, you do get an event when that happens. If you want to put it back, uh, stop it again immediately, that's fine. Uh, you can start it, stop it after it's done its maintenance and uh, uh, if, you, if you want to. So uh, super easy, just uh, stop from the console or you can script the stop through uh, the API. So hopefully this has given you a, a, a tour of uh, Amazon RDS, uh, lots of uh, tips for uh, optimizing RDS. Uh, in case you uh, broke down some of the other related sessions at reInvent, I know there's hundreds of sessions, so um, see, these are some that uh, you might be interested if you're interested in learning more about RDS, whether it's running SQL Server, running its Oracle, um, and, and some higher level presentations about overall database trends. But thank you so much for coming, and uh, I will actually, uh, I'm going to get off the stage, but you feel free to come up and talk and ask questions, and uh, we'll also be at the, uh, the show floor. So thank you very much.